thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday, February the 6th, 2011. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Sarah Castor-Perry. Now this week, the future of computing. We'll discover what the computer chips of tomorrow will be like. And with Valentine's Day around the corner... We'll also find out what's more environmentally friendly, an e-card, which has been sent by a computer, or the more traditional variety that's sent by raw mail. Also, news of how researchers have discovered a way to grow new arteries to replace damaged blood vessels, and how Australian scientists have created an electrical thinking cap that can make people solve maths problems that they couldn't do before. And you might just need that cap to find out what, or work out, what this is. And let me tell you, you will be very surprised when you find out shortly what it is. If you want to get in touch through Twitter, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. That's the nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook. Or you can drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry and let's kick off with a look at some of this week's top science stories. Sarah, what have you got for us? Well, I've got a story that was published in the journal Science this week uh, from Michelle Rieler and her colleagues and they've actually found a new subspecies of mosquito that is very susceptible to the most dangerous form of malaria parasite. So most of what we currently know about the mosquitoes that live in this particular area of West Africa that they studied is because researchers go into people's houses and they capture the adult mosquitoes in the houses. But what Michelle Reeler and her colleagues did was they actually collected larvae of this species called Anopheles gambii um, from pools around these villages in Burkina Faso. And what they found was there are actually two genetically distinct groups of these larvae. So one that is genetically clustered with the ones inside the houses, but then this whole other separate group, which is kind of interesting in a way that there's this whole separate group that people didn't know about because they've only been collecting mosquitoes inside the houses. And what they did was they took them back to the lab and they fed them a blood meal, so blood that had been infected with Plasmodium falciparum, which is the most deadly form of malaria to humans. And what they found was that 58% of this exophilic, so that the group that likes to live outside, became infected, compared to only 35% of the ones that were known to live indoors, so the ones that had been captured before. So that's quite a large difference in the amount of infection, and it's quite worrying that so many more of this new species are infected compared to the ones we know. It's interesting that it was overlooked because of a sampling error. People were looking at the kind of mosquitoes that live in people's homes, reasonably, I suppose, but they completely overlooked 
the mosquitoes that don't live in homes, the species that have evolved and live outside people's homes, and turns out they're really infectable. But, and this is a sort of fly or even mosquito in the ointment, excuse me, and that is just because they can be infected doesn't mean they actually pass it on to humans, though, does it? Yes, so this there isn't actually any evidence to suggest that these mosquitoes are anthropophagous, which is a great word, which means that there's no evidence that they actually feed on humans. And just because they're more infectable with malaria doesn't necessarily mean that they are more likely to infect humans. But it's kind of interesting because all of the current strategies for dealing with malaria are focused on what you can do in the home. So mosquito nets over the bed, spraying the insides of the houses with insecticides. And obviously, if there is this outdoor living group that could kind of scupper those plans, we may need to possibly rethink our strategies. Indeed. So just because there isn't any evidence that they do infect humans doesn't mean at the moment that they don't. We just need to, now we've identified them, go and have a look. Exactly. Well, sticking with the health theme, uh, the field of arterial graft surgery, in other words, bypasses and that kind of thing, looks set to make a big leap forward this week, uh, thanks to a breakthrough by scientists in America. There's a paper which is in the journal Science Translational Medicine. It's by Shannon Dahl and her colleagues, and they're based at a North Carolina company called Humicide. And they have described a method for making very effective arterial bypass grafts, which are artificial. Now, let me explain what we mean by this. Sometimes blood vessels are either injured by trauma or they're injured by disease and they need to be replaced. So when you have a blockage to a coronary artery supplying your heart, for example, sometimes one way to treat that is to make a bypass around the blocked bit of artery by borrowing a blood vessel from the leg or occasionally when you have other bits of vessels that need bypassing, you have to put in an artificial graft. But not all vessels can be treated in this way and sometimes patients own vessels like veins in their legs are not suitable for this kind of purpose so you need some kind of replacement vessel but the ones that have been made up until now are very poor performers in fact they only stay patent open for about three years if you're lucky in about 25% of cases so in other words the majority 75% will fur up in less time than that which is not very good news for the patient but what this group do is ingenious So they take a chemical which is called polyglycolic acid, PGA. It's a biocompatible material, and they make a tubular scaffolding out of this. They put it into a nutrient solution, and they seed it with smooth muscle cells, the kind of cells you normally find in the walls of arteries in a human, and they incubate it in this environment for 7 to 10 weeks. And these smooth muscle cells grow all over this scaffold, eating it away as they do so, and what you end up with is this muscular tube of tissue. Now, you could implant that into a person, but then there would be cells in there that are not compatible with the person you're putting it into. So how do you deal with that? Well, what they do is to flush the tube through with a detergent solution, and this decellularizes it, it destroys all the cells, and that leaves behind just a tube of connective tissue that the muscle cells have made, which turns out to be incredibly strong. In fact, the burst pressure for these vessels is about 3,000 millimetres of mercury. Now, to put that into perspective, even someone with a lifestyle like mine would struggle to manage a blood pressure of about 200 millimetres of mercury as their systolic so that's at least 10 to 15 times higher than the pressure that most arteries in the body would encounter they made vessels which were bespoke for baboons and cats and dogs and they were able to implant them into those animals and demonstrate they remained patent open for long periods of time And the other interesting thing is that when you implant these vessels, and the ones they made were about six millimetres in diameter, so that's a reasonable-sized artery, the cells that normally line arteries are called endothelial cells. Well, they found that they migrated into these grafts and formed a sort of pavement layer on the inside of these grafts. 
making the inside surface very smooth and therefore they didn't fur up. So the next step will be to say, well, can we actually do this in human patients because there's every reason to suspect that it would be successful. And I suppose that's also really good news because traditionally for a bypass you have to strip blood vessels out of other parts of the body like the leg so if you if you don't have to do that it means one less element of surgery to perform on the patient some people have veins that are not suitable because they've been affected by for instance varicosities if they've got varicose veins or the surgery's already been done or they have infections for example you can't use that tissue so sometimes there just isn't a supply of tissue or you've already used the tissue and you need some more people who are undergoing dialysis for say renal replacement therapy if they've got a renal problem they need to have arteriovenous fistulas made where you have a connection between an artery and a vein and you need to keep accessing it. And if you keep on accessing normal tissue, eventually it furs up. So a thing like this that could be put in place could provide a ready access to a big source of blood so that that kind of thing became much easier to do in future. Now also this week, uh, scientists have discovered how to create a thinking cap. I love this. It helps people to become much more creative. The work's based on observations that sometimes damage to the front part of the brain's left temporal lobe can disclose extraordinary artistic and musical talents that a patient never knew they had. And now Richard Chi and Alan Snyder from the Centre for the Mind at the University of Sydney have used a non-invasive technique called transcranial direct current stimulation to harmlessly reduce the activity in this front part of the brain, which boosted the problem-solving abilities of a large group of healthy volunteers. Alan Snyder. Well, the big picture, I guess, is inspired by the quote from William Blake. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. So we were confronting the challenging problem of how to artificially induce a less filtered view of the world, one less constrained by preconceptions. In other words, the world that we see is one tinted by past experience. You learn something and that informs the way that you interpret the world henceforth. Precisely. Our perceptions, our memory, our decisions are based on filtered information. We view the world in a sense top-down through concepts, through mental templates, which are built up from our past experience. And of course these concepts are crucially important for our survival. They enable us to make rapid predictions about what is most likely based on only partial information. But the strategy leads us susceptible to certain kinds of perceptual and cognitive errors, visual illusions, false memories, prejudice, and it makes us inclined to connect the dots in ways that are familiar rather than to explore novel interpretations. Which makes it much harder to think outside the box if you're trying to solve a problem and you're trying to solve a hard problem that other people have grappled with, there's probably going to be an original solution. Going down the same wrong road they have is the wrong approach. You need to think a new way, and if we could find a way to do that, we'd be better off. Yeah, I mean, it's not the wrong approach. It's the, very, it's the good approach, <laughs> but it's not going to work if, if it doesn't apply. In other words, our observations of the world and the problems we are talking about are strongly shaped by our preconceptions from previous problems where that didn't work. So how have you tried to get an angle on what the brain is doing and how to get around that problem then? Well, what if we could temporarily inhibit this top-down processing and thereby access a level of perception normally hidden from conscious awareness? Might we be able to have a world which is less preconceived? Of course, you'd only want to do this temporarily. We need our conceptual makeup. We we don't want to be like an infant. 
But that's the kind of rationale that's behind our work. So how did you actually tackle this problem? What did you do? We use non-invasive, safe non-invasive transcranial direct current stimulation to inhibit the left anterior temporal lobe. That's an area associated with conceptual processing, labels, and categories. In addition, we simultaneously excited the right anterior temporal lobe, an area associated with insight and novel meaning. The objective was to temporarily induce a less filtered, less assumption-driven cognitive style. And what did you ask people to whom you were doing this to do in order to see if they were thinking in a new way or thinking more originally? Well, we took a sort of standard problem of insight, a matchstick, arithmetic kind of visual problem, and we showed them how to do one class of those problems and then asked them to do a much harder problem that required a novel turn, novel twist. And the people who received direct current stimulation, three times as many of them solved the problem than those in the control group. And the argument would be that because you had to think about the problem in a novel way, this suppression of the left side of the brain, which normally forces you to think in this hypothesis-led, familiar or way informed by familiarity, that having been turned off, they began to think in a novel way, and that's what gave them this insight to solve the problem in the new way. Yeah, that's the way we look at it. So now you've found this, what's the next step? Is it to say, right, okay, can we try and apply this to other modalities? So that's a problem-solving task it's a part visual, part cognition. Are you now going to start looking at other things that might be informed by the same strategy? You're right. Every sensory modality uses the top-down process. So we indeed have been trying to think of other experiments that we could do that would illustrate this concept, and we have a few in mind. Maybe you need to, to stimulate your brain to suppress the activity in the left anterior temporal lobe to see what comes out. Um, but practically speaking, could you use this for anything? Do you think musicians should plug themselves in? Should mathematicians grappling with tough problems plug themselves in like this to see if they can free their mind? We both suggested that it could be Richard Chi and I suggested that it might be a thinking cap. And the concept about a thinking cap, I think many people regard a thinking cap as something that might be a Google retriever but we don't need that because we have Google. What we really need in the future is a way to connect seemingly disparate pieces of information into a new synthesis. In other words, to look at things afresh. And that is what I would hope a thinking cap could give us, a creativity enhancer in that sense. And yes, I think this is something that could be used in the future. I mean, it's a very simple device. It uses a 9-volt battery. What we need to do is try to optimize the configuration of stimulation on the brain. We need to think about the time interval that we want to expose people to. There are many variables here to, to optimize this once you accept the reality or the proof of principle. I think I could use one of those thinking caps. That was Professor Alan Snyder, who's the director of the Centre for the Mind at the University of Sydney, and he published that work this week in the journal PLOS One. Sarah. I've got a story now which is a bit of a worrying story about drought in the Amazon. Back in 2005, uh, the Amazon rainforest suffered quite a catastrophic drought which was billed as a once-in-a-century event and droughts like this are caused by increased sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic Ocean. 
But now a team led by Simon Lewis from the University of Leeds have analysed data from another drought, which was in 2010, and they've concluded that this was in fact even more serious than this once-in-a-century event and that successive droughts like this could start causing massive global problems. They found that 57% of the Amazon region had low rainfall in 2010 compared to 37% in 2005, and also that the water stress on the trees was more severe. And they worked this out using uh, a measure of drought severity called the maximum climatological water deficit. Uh, And this actually correlates really well with how likely trees are to die from drought. And uh, they estimated that about 3.2 million kilometres squared of forest in 2010 would have suffered uh, a level of drought enough to cause significant tree death compared to 2.5 kilometres squared in 2005. Um, So, well, why is this important? Well, the Amazon acts like a giant carbon sink. It takes in a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere and locks it up in plant matter. And this has helped to act like a buffer against all of the CO2 that we've been pumping out into the atmosphere. But if droughts like the 2005 and 2010 events keep happening, uh, and they will if sea surface temperatures continue to rise, which they have been for the last few years, more trees will either be suffering or will in fact die. And this means that not only will they stop taking in CO2, but they'll actually start to release more of it as a result of being broken down by microbes and that sort of thing. And another effect of increasing temperatures, combined with the fact that you'll have a build-up of dead plant matter, is an increase in the likelihood of forest fires, which is another big source of CO2 as well. So um, the researchers suggested that this actually could become a positive feedback cycle. So you have increasing temperatures, more trees die, so less take-up of CO2, greater release of CO2, which in turn feeds back into the cycle of increasing the sea surface temperatures again, making the whole thing worse. So it just gets worse and worse and could have really catastrophic effects. It's a worry, isn't it? Because the Amazon, of course, is locking away billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide every year. And it's paradoxical to think that raised sea temperatures, which actually make more hurricanes and more rainfall in North America, rob water from South America and then make that happen in the Amazon. Certainly worrying news. Now, just to finish us off, uh, there's a very nice paper which has been published in the journal Science this week. It's by researchers in Zurich, Donald Hilvert and his colleagues. And this caught my eye because it's intriguing what they're doing. They've been looking at an enzyme which is called lumazine synthase. It's actually involved in making one of the B vitamins, vitamin B2, riboflavin. That's not so important as the fact that when you make this lumazine synthase inside a bacterial cell, what the enzyme does is it groups together with other enzymes of the same kind and they assemble automatically into a sort of ball but this is a hollow ball so you could potentially put something inside it and what this group do is in e coli which they're genetically modifying they make this enzyme make these balls but they've changed the amino acid sequence inside the balls a little tiny bit so it has a strong negative charge and what they're then able to do is to make the bacteria make other things including things which are normally so toxic that the bacteria wouldn't be able to make them and because they've tagged those toxic things with a positive charge what happens is that when the bacteria make them they then get packaged inside these little footballs that are being made inside the bacteria and so the bacteria remain viable and don't die and this potentially could be one way that you could make bacteria make the currently unmakeable because we want to use bacteria to make chemicals which we could use as drugs or other therapeutics or for other forms of research and some things just can't be made because they kill the bacteria when they try to make them 
These ones, though, have got round it because the toxic stuff just gets packaged inside the balls where it can't do any harm, and re-extracting it is very easy because all you do is bust open the bacteria, you separate out these little footballs, and then you break those open, and the stuff that you've been making, which is packaged inside, comes out, and you can then use it. Isn't that intriguing? Interesting stuff. Well, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered so far this week, the references and the transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. And you're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Sarah Cast-Perry. Now, documentaries filmed underwater tend to give the impression that it's a quiet, even serene environment beneath the waves. But stick a microphone in the sea and you'd be amazed what you can hear. One man who's been doing just that is Bristol University fish ecologist Steve Simpson, and he's found that many marine species use these underwater sounds to find their way around. Richard Hollingham went to meet him. That's a really healthy coral reef in the Philippines. It's a marine protected area. It's very well protected from fishing. First of all, there's a background crackle. It sounds almost like the sound of heavy rain on the pavement. Or bacon and a, or, and a or pan. Frying or bacon. That was, that was how it was first described by mariners. That's the sound of snapping shrimp. They produce a, a micro-bubble in their claw that they fire forwards. The bubble implodes when it hits the water, and that creates a very loud snap. Now, the other sound in there was almost a, a croaking sound. That's right. So uh, there's then a whole suite of diverse sounds that fish have learnt to make. So they can be croaking sounds, chirping noises that sound almost frog-like, and they do that to communicate with each other, perhaps to assess whether they're a, a suitable mate or for territorial behaviour. The logical next step for our work was to take our recordings of coral reefs and start to look at what information that recording contained. So the first study that we did then was to split the recording into the higher frequency noise, that is the crackling snapping shrimp, and the lower frequency noise that was the fish popping and chirping. What we found was that larval fish were actually attracted to the higher frequency crackling noises. So we think that might be a cue that brings them into shallow water environments. And when we play the sounds on artificial reefs, the lower frequency noises are then used by the juvenile and adult fish that move around at night trying to find habitat. Um, we've actually just got a paper out this week which shows that when you take recordings from different types of habitat, um, so we take recordings from an outer barrier, we take recordings from an inner lagoon, and we play that next to artificial reefs, the fish that you would find on the lagoon arrive onto that artificial reef, the fish that you would find on the outer reef, you then find settling onto reefs playing those noises. So the fact that fish are able to tell different habitats apart from the noise has got us very interested in what the soundscape of a coral reef environment really is like. Why is this important? It's interesting, but why is it important? The reason that I got interested in it was actually from a much more applied perspective in that I was interested in coral reef fisheries, particularly in uh, fisheries in developing world situations where there is very limited information on what is being caught. Um, it's a multi-species fishery. It's normally artisanal, so the fish are landed on the beach. 
So to try and actually model or manage populations of fish is very difficult if you've got no idea how the actual whole life cycle works. Now, your latest research comes back to those, those crustaceans, the, the snapping sound that, that we were hearing at the beginning. So there are some crustaceans uh, that do have a pelagic larval phase and then settle onto coral reef environment. So crabs and lobsters are good examples of those. And we find that late-stage larvae of crabs are attracted to coral reef noise. So that's, that's great. But there are lots of crustaceans that live around coral reef environments in an otherwise fairly low-nutrient environment, coral reefs are quite high in nutrients. So to be able to forage on the outskirts of coral reefs without encountering the, uh, the millions of mouths that come out at night in every coral polyp and every planktivorous fish, to find some way that you could live near to the coral reef without landing on it would be very useful. And we find that lots of groups of crustaceans that either sit in the seabed during the daytime and come up into the water column at night to feed, or that are constantly in the planktonic realm, are able to detect coral reef noise but stay away from it. So it becomes a cue cue that's not just used as as an attractive cue, but it relates to the ecology of the animals. Well, I should really have known what that sound was. Uh, I, I did recognise it because I have been scuba diving and it is, it's funny, that sort of crackling noise, but I, I wasn't aware of what it actually was that caused those noises. Sounds like a rainforest, didn't it, when we played it at the beginning? And I, I mean, when I first heard that sound, I thought it was rain drumming and frogs croaking in a rainforest. It's well, a coral reef. the point about the bacon, actually, I, I did agree that that does sound a lot like frying bacon. That was Steve Simpson from the University of Bristol talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can hear more of the sounds of the underwater under the sea including sperm whales talking to their calves in the latest planet earth podcast and you can find links to that on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth keeping you abreast of the world's best science the naked scientists You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry. And this week, we're looking into some new breakthroughs in computing. Coming up, we'll hear from Cambridge University computer scientist Professor Andy Hopper about a system he's developing to enable some of the world's computing jobs to be done on computers that are using energy that would otherwise go to waste. We'll also talk to Mike Muller from Arm, uh, one of the companies that make probably or design more chips than anyone else in the world. You've almost certainly got an Arm chip about you if you have a mobile device. But first, how does a computer chip really work? Well, Dave and Mira have been to find out for this week's Naked Engineering. This week, Dave and I have set out to investigate just how computers are engineered. Now, we've come along to the computer laboratory at the University of Cambridge. So, Dave, just to start off with, what will we be looking at in terms of computers? Well, if you take apart any piece of modern equipment, from a phone to a telephone to even a washing machine, you'll find little black rectangles called computer chips. And that's where actually all of the complicated controlling things are happening inside these little blocks. Well, here to tell us a bit more about these computer chips is Dr Robert Mullins, lecturer in computer science at the University of Cambridge. OK, so um, if we take the, those, those black pieces of plastic and we were to remove the plastic with some acid or something, we'd see in the centre a little piece of silicon about one centimetre on a side. And on top of that would be a tiny little electronic digital circuit. And that's the computer chip. So the circuit's printed on top of the silicon chip using a process called photolithography, very similar, really, to a photographic process. So we effectively print a layer of transistors, 
This is what we build our digital circuits out of. And then on top of that layer of transistors, we print layers and layers of interconnect. I always think of a transistor as a short pipe with a tap in the middle. And the tap is what we call the gate, and either end is called the source and drain. And we can turn the, the tap on and off by applying a voltage to the gate terminal. That changes the electrical properties of the material under the gate and then enables the transistor to conduct or not. A transistor is essentially an electronic switch, so you you can use a small current or a small voltage to turn on or off um, a much larger one on the other side of a transistor. How do you connect these together? It's relatively straightforward to to put the transistors down, but we then need to interconnect these huge numbers of transistors. So we need lots and lots of layers of metal to do that. But how do all these, say, transistors work together inside a computer, say when you're giving a computer an instruction to do something? At the lowest level, we take a few transistors, maybe six or eight transistors, put them together to build a single memory cell or a single logic gate. These logic gates, little groups of transistors, which can do a variety of little operations. So you might have a logic gate with two inputs, one output. Some of them are called AND gates. So if both inputs have a positive voltage on them, then the output will be positive. Or it might be a OR gate. So if one or other of the two inputs are positive, then the output will be positive. So there's a whole variety of these different logic gates. But how then do you step up from there to a a whole computer? So in the same way as we build gates out of transistors, we build larger circuits, for example, adders that are able to just take two inputs and add the numbers together. We build those out of logic gates. Once we have the uh, more complex building blocks, so larger memories, components that are able to add numbers, then, again, it's another layer of abstraction to interconnect these components to build complete processes. So one group of people design the transistors, another group will then put those together to form gates, and then the gates get put together to form adders, and then another group will be putting the big chunks together to form the whole chip. That's right. Now, what about how the size of these chips and transistors and things have changed over time? So the original computer chips that were designed were much bigger than the ones that we see today. And it's one of the reasons why computers get a lot faster very quickly. So smaller transistors mean that they switch faster. It also means we can put more on a single chip. It means we can build more powerful, more complex processors. So we can illustrate this point by looking. I've got a little, um, this is one of the early ARM processors. This to me looks reasonably small. It's about 7 millimetres by 7 millimetres. How many transistors are on this? On this early processor, about 25,000. And so how does this compare to a chip that we would see today? So incredibly, if you manufactured something, a simple ARM processor in a cutting-edge process today, the processor would fit in a square 70 microns by 70 microns. And that's small enough to print these processors on the edge of a human hair. So that's about 10,000 times smaller. Yeah, we're really able to exploit that scaling to make processors go faster. So a computer then obviously is made up of many of these very tiny chips, but there are many instructions that you give a computer or many processes going on. So are different sets of chips or different microprocessors dealing with different things? So if we look at a complete computer system, there are actually many different types of chip in that uh, device. So some will be the sort of microprocessors that we've been talking about. Others will just be dedicated to memory, to storing data or instructions. By bringing everything together on one chip, things become faster, it also becomes lower power as well. But I guess as transistors get smaller and smaller and smaller, eventually you're going to get to the point where the transistor is going to have like four or five atoms in it. That's right. So as we build atomic scale devices, then what's called device variation really causes major problems. Uh, so two transistors manufactured next to each other on, on, the, uh, on our piece of silicon can have very different characteristics. Before then, I think one of the major uh, performance limiters will be um, power consumption. And this power is actually being used for the actual physical switching of the transistors on and off. That's right. So we dissipate power when we switch transistors on and off. 
And to execute each instruction, we need to switch a certain number of transistors on and off. And as we build more complex processors, the number of transistors that we have to switch on and off per instruction increases, and that means we have to dissipate more energy. It's also applications have changed. So if you think about what people want in terms of computing devices now, they want mobile devices, they want them to run off batteries. If your processor's consuming a, a large amount of power, that's going to reduce your battery life. We're also building large data centers with large number of processors in it. And I can show you the problems of trying to put a large number of processors in a single room if I show you one of our small um, computer rooms. There are about 100 computers in here, and the sound of the air conditioning alone to remove the heat from here it shows just how much energy is needed. And, of course, for every kilowatt hour of energy you're using in the computers, it probably takes about another kilowatt hour to get it out through the air conditioners, making the problem twice as bad. And this is a fraction of the size of a modern data centre, and, of course, the running cost of the data centre, a big part of it is the, the total electricity bill, which comes from the power dissipated in the processors. Right, so now that I can hear you again, Robert, tell me a bit about your research, because you're also trying to make chips that will need less power, I guess. Yes, so the approach we're taking is to put hundreds or even thousands of very, very simple processors on a chip and then design these in a way that they can be specialised for a particular application. It's this specialisation that enables us to reduce power. This because a general purpose processor has got to be able to do everything. So if you're doing any one thing, lots of it is essentially being wasted all the time. That's exactly right. So you're really having to redesign almost and really think about how a computer is actually made and create different or new types of chips. Yeah, and I think the combination of the new applications that we're seeing for computers at the moment, I think make this one of the most exciting times to be uh, learning about computer science or trying to solve these problems. Robert Mullins from the University of Cambridge talking to Mira Senthalingam and Dave Ansell. There's a video of this as well and the previous episodes of Naked Engineering on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash engineering. And actually, if you're struggling to get your head around how binary actually works, very timely because this week we've just published an article by Jeff Zalahi on our website, which is all about the magic of binary. So if you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash articles, you can read his article and it might make it just a little bit clearer. Sarah. If you've got any questions about binary or anything else, do get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join us on our Facebook page. You can find that at thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook. Thanks, Sarah. Now, we are talking about the science of computers and computing of the future this week. And if you own a mobile device, whether that's a phone or a camera or a portable music player, then there's probably a 99.9% chance that at least some of the computer chips running inside that device are designed by a company based here in Cambridge called Arm. Uh, if you owned a BBC microcomputer in the 1980s, then you've also come into contact with one of their other products. They're actually a world leader in developing digital solutions, and two of the projects they're working on at the moment are ways to make computer chips smaller and much more energy efficient. And Mike Muller is Arm's chief technology officer. He's here with us today. Hello, Mike. Hiya. Thank you for coming in and joining us on The Naked Scientist. First of all, what actually determines how energy-hungry a chip is? Well, I guess there's kind of three main things. The first is, how big is it? Um, the bigger it is, the more transistors it's got, um, the more power it takes. So a lot of what we do is about how you get those compromises and design something that's big enough for the task in hand but doesn't over-engineer things because that takes excess power. The Why does ARM account for 99.9% .9 of the marketplace? Though? Why have you got that huge dominance? What is it about your technology that makes it so attractive to all those different industries? Well, it's two things. The technology is part of it, but 
possibly more important is the way we went around our business, which is actually not to manufacture anything and just to license our uh, intellectual property to people who do, letting them specialise in what makes them good and lets us focus on what we do, which is design low-power microprocessors. But at the same time, the design must have something going for it or all those licensees wouldn't use the technology. So what is it that they're going for? We've put in a lot of work for how you come up with new techniques to save power. So a lot of people... um, in the past have focused on how do you make a chip go as quickly as possible and if you try and make it go as fast as it can you end up actually burning a lot of excess power and if you back off just a little bit and make slightly different compromises you can come up with solutions that take a lot less power. And of course when we're talking about things people want to carry around with them the batteries were the vast bulk of the weight and were the thing holding back the technology in the early days because the more powerful you make them, the more energy they're going to get through so they're going to burn off batteries more quickly. So if you've got more efficient chip designs, that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. And I think recently there's been a change of people designing for kind of what's the absolute power you can have to what's um, low power devices for batteries. And in the future, it's actually not the battery that's the issue. It's the available energy. When you start to have really tiny devices embedded into things all around you, you're scavenging energy from the environment. You actually need to worry about what's the available power. And that could be very low indeed. So how can we get the energy requirements of the chips of tomorrow down what sorts of technologies are you guys working on in order to make that reality one of the techniques we're working on involves lowering the voltage that a chip runs at because power is actually proportional to voltage squared so it's one of the most important things you can do is to lower power and if you took the uh, article before when somebody designs a process they work out how it works and then put in a little margin of safety and then you heard about how you take the transistors and you build a few gates and the people that design that put in a little more margin of safety then we come along and design our processors and put in a little more margin of safety and then somebody puts it all together in the chip and what you end up with is um, a safe chip that you know works all the time and it possibly is then specified to run at three volts in reality it might run at two and a half volts and the difference between two and a half volts and three volts is 50 percent in power because it's squared because it's V-squared. So what you really want to do is run that chip at 2.5 volts. Now, people who overclock their PCs sometimes say, well, I actually know that this chip can go faster than it does. I'll turn it up and run it faster. And the problem they have is on a hot day, it might get too hot, and then it stops working. So the idea is something we've borrowed from the mobile phone industry, where they said... Radio signals are really noisy. We have to have error recovery because you get glitches and and, and noise. And so when you're with a mobile phone transmitting to a base station, you actually turn down the power of the transmitter until it starts making mistakes. The error recovery cuts in and you can then recover that and you don't notice that. And then it turns the power up as you move further away. So it's sort of dynamic error recovery, isn't it? So your chips will run at a threshold where they're just about not making any mistakes. And you're engineering that into the chip rather than into the software that's running through the chip. That's absolutely right. And most digital designers are really uncomfortable with the idea that their chip will make mistakes. And so we've designed a processor which will correct its errors dynamically, which allows you to turn it down until you find that point where it just starts making mistakes. And as long as the power to recover from those errors is better than the power you've wasted, you're ahead of the game. And the benefit of doing this kind of thing would be then that not only are you using less energy because 
the voltage is down. But also that means you can actually make the chip bigger and do more, so actually the device it's in can become more powerful without having to burn off more energy. Well, we're always in a race of the fact that the software guys want to write more complicated software and therefore they want more power, while we'd like to have a static world where you could make things simpler and smaller. So, yeah, there's always a balance between actually designing a lower-powered device and then find somebody's just made it all run faster and used that all up again. So when a company like Arm says, right, we're going to, to come up with this sort of design... How long from the concept to it appearing in a phone like mine sitting here on the desk? Well, we started work on this with the university about seven years ago was when you could point to the first germ of an idea. And I reckon it's going to be another three or four years until you see those kinds of things in real products. So it's a long time from good idea through to actual product in the market. And when we do see it in the market, what sort of difference will it make? What will you be able to say to designers of equipment that means that they will say well yes okay we'll definitely invest in this as the the benchmark in the future well you'll probably as a user never know it'll be just one of these techniques that means the next phone you buy has slightly longer battery life and does even more things than it did before and you'll just take it for granted that that's technology marching on its forward progress Mike, thank you very much. Mike Muller is here with us from Arm, based in Cambridge. He's with us for the rest of the programme, so if you have any questions for him, do get in touch. The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've also got a Facebook page. Just look us up on Facebook, or you can tweet at Naked Scientist if you have any questions about the future of computing. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry. Now, still to come, with Valentine's Day just around the corner... Which is more environmentally friendly, an e-Valentine's Day card sent by computer or the traditional paper and card one? Or bearing in mind what my colleague Yolanda said to me the other day when I told her we were answering this question, you've got to take into account the hot air that will inevitably be generated by the unhappy recipient as well. Sarah. But first of all, as the internet and our reliance on computers grows, so does the amount of energy that this industry consumes, which means significant CO2 emissions. But is there a way to make the process more environmentally friendly? Computer scientist Professor Andy Hopper from Cambridge University has been working on a way to turn waste energy into useful computer processing around the planet. Hello, Andy. Hello there. To put some numbers on the problem first, how much energy are we looking at and how much CO2 does running the internet consume? Well, about 3, 4, 5, 6% of energy use, uh, of the global energy use goes into computing one way or another. Uh, so it's not a huge number at the moment, but it's going up uh, fairly quickly. And what sort of volume of CO2 is that? I mean, compared to other industries, what's, what does that compare? Well, the aviation industry would be uh, probably two or three times that. So we're uh, catching up on it, uh, maybe in due course uh, it'll be comparable. And so what's the solution that you've been working on to help counteract this? Well, what we're trying to understand is whether the notion of taking computing to energy sources and using energy which would otherwise be lost because it cannot be transported to the place where it can be used. So the notion is transmit bits around the planet rather than energy around the planet and see if you can be a kind of a sponge for either surplus energy or perhaps more importantly, energy that cannot be got to houses or to trains or to situations where it can be used in a more obvious fashion. So this means running processes in an area of the world where it's not being used locally, so it's, it's night time and there's not a whole lot going on, and you can then use that 
sort of downtime for an area where it's during the day and you've got a lot of traffic going on. That's right. So it's either uh, the windmill has speeded up uh, somewhere uh, or it's nighttime and uh, there isn't much uh, local use for whatever reason. And what we're trying to find out is to what extent is this possible? What is actually the energy cost of shipping the data and the problems to these potentially remote places? Because it must be a win rather than a lose. But fiber optic uh, communication is a marvelous uh, technology because essentially the further you go, the more energy you don't really use. So you can go much, much further without paying an energy price. It's almost like magic. Uh, And then seeing at what level of granularity, what sort of problems, what sort of tasks uh, can be done in this way uh, and soak up this uh, surplus energy so that uh, perhaps in due course when uh, uh, 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the world's energy is going on computing, we can say, oh, that maybe three or four percent is energy that would otherwise be lost. And so what sort of tasks are you looking at that will be suitable? Because I'm guessing ones where you want an instantaneous reaction, so e-commerce and things like that, they aren't necessarily so suitable as things where you don't necessarily need that instant feedback. That's right. So uh, anything that uh, requires instant response that is interactive is uh, less suitable to this sort of approach. But nevertheless, you can go a reasonable way. It's constrained by the speed of light. So so it's not that it has to be just around the corner. It might be at the other end of your country up in uh, Shetlands or, or, or whatever. Uh, but nevertheless, we're trying to divide up uh, the tasks into those that are interactive require an immediate solution to uh, perhaps others which are cataloging tasks, recognition tasks, which which can be done more slowly and therefore uh, are amenable to this sort of treatment. How realistic is this? I mean, you mentioned the sort of advent of fibre optics. Are our current networks able to deal with this? Are they fast enough at the moment? Well, to some extent, it is already done that you you, you place uh, server farms close to cheap energy sources and uh, ship data there and uh, get the answers back. But, you know, it is appropriate uh, to be slightly fanciful, not completely unrealistic, but slightly fanciful in one scenario. And so I'm looking maybe 10, 15 years out where the networking uh, around the world is perhaps somewhat different. There is much more fiber communications. We have server farms in perhaps what today seem unusual places in the middle of the oceans uh, uh, where it's very windy, uh, from which you most definitely couldn't get the energy back to heat a house, but you might be able to uh, uh, do the computing jobs. Now, you have to be very careful about this. You mustn't cheat, so you have to take into account the energy cost of uh, uh, getting the uh, computing uh, there, so to speak, building that plant, including the embedded energy costs in in the manufacturing of it, uh, maintaining it, and then uh, recycling it or shutting it down in an appropriate way at the end of its useful life. So you have to take the whole picture. But nevertheless, with that in mind, and the notion of distance doesn't matter so much with fiber optics, I think the world may be a a different place. And and one other comment that follows on from uh, Mike's uh, contribution earlier, I think it's energy proportional computing and communications that is very, very important going forward, that rather than over-provisioning, over-engineering, over-dimensioning, which has traditionally uh, been the case and is now being is, is less important uh, in mobile communications, this spreads to everything. And every computer on the planet is either doing useful work or is shut down or in, at least in very deep sleep mode. Now, one way of helping understand this is looking at this chasing the energy, because if you move a job somewhere else, then the one that was uh, originally destined for that job can be switched off. And so what is the scale of the saving in energy that we're looking at? 
Well, to be quite honest, I don't know. Uh, that's the uh, challenge we have because to be realistic about this, we have to postulate uh, some kind of model of how the networks will work, take current jobs, divide them up, uh, and so on. But initial results suggest that it's, it's not going to be just 1% or 2%, that there is a reasonably good uh, opportunity here for improving the way computing works. And so ask me uh, back in about five years' time and I might hesitate to give you an answer. And I suppose even though it may be a certain amount of percentage now with time moving on, it'll become more important as we become more reliant on the internet. But will we expect to see this sort of thing being implemented anytime soon? Well, the beginnings of it are happening now. But let me just point out another kind of win-win not only uh, using energy that would otherwise be lost, but also in many cases using that energy to compute things about the real world which save even more energy, optimizing the physical world by using energy in the digital world and that energy itself being, so to speak, free lunch energy. Now, that would be a wonderful scenario, but uh, as I say, I I am paid to be slightly fanciful and, and there it is. Well, thanks, Andy. We'll have to leave it there. That's Professor Andy Hopper, head of Computer Lab at Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. It's Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry, and we're talking this week about the future of computing. We have our guests, Mike Muller and Andy Hopper, with us here in the studio. And we've got some questions here, in fact, lots of them. Osman Ahmed, and this is probably one for, for you, Andy. He says, do we really need fasting, faster computing power, or are our programming methods just inefficient? What do we need to do? Um, Do we need to just make sure that our programs run on our computers in a more efficient way? There is a tension on the one hand by having more sophisticated programming languages and therefore programs using them. It is easier to write some kinds of software. It is possibly easier to uh, to address large problems. But on the other hand, that introduces inefficiency, sometimes very substantial inefficiency. So the challenge is to provide programming environments and programming languages which on the one hand provide the high-level abstractions, make it easier to program and not make huge mistakes, so to speak, but on the other hand, have a more direct connection to the processor itself uh, and uh, are more efficient in the use of resources and in particular have energy proportional computing as their underpinning requirement. Mike, did you want to point out anything about the processor manufacturer's sort of perspective on this in terms of how you design your chips around making it easier for people to write software that caters for that sort of thing? Well, we certainly try to address the new languages that are coming and make it more efficient. And I think um, to follow on, I mean, the example in servers is the best way to save power in servers is perhaps to do half as much work. And that's a programming challenge where you can find those kinds of savings. And if you type something like naked scientist into your favorite search engine... Better still, um, Mike, you can now type Mike Muller naked into your favorite search engine. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Um, (laughs) It'll come back and say so many results found in so many seconds. And what they're starting to do is with popular searches look at what happens if i just search half as hard did it actually change how many results people clicked on and so you actually dynamically change how much searching you're doing because again you may be over searching and providing results that are better than you need following on with the sort of efficiency thing i've got another question for you mike it's from finley connect on twitter and they say are newer computers more efficient than older ones so like a fridge or a furnace how do i know when to get a new pc or mac so how do you know when they're going to be the most efficient well there's no doubt newer computers are more efficient than older ones and they get better every year and it's the perennial technology question of if you wait just a bit longer you can get one that goes faster takes less power and will be a bit cheaper um but uh, you can always wait forever i've got a question probably both of you are going to have a perspective on this on facebook ryan chowns says is there a practical limit to how fast computing can become or is the speed of light 
the limit. Well, I, I think.、Um, Computers are slowing down, and they're not getting faster and faster. And the real challenge is how you make things go parallel, and how do you divide things up and actually have multiple computers working on the same problem at once? And that's probably the way you actually push performance in the long run. Andy, we are、uh, approaching what people have described as the silicon endpoint.、Uh, mind you, the silicon endpoint seems to have a half-life of about five years, and that is the point at which we really don't make any more substantive progress. And so the speed of individual chips will asymptote and will be limited. The parallel point is important, but that's an old cherry. And how to make uh, uh, things work in parallel is very difficult. Well, now moving on, it's time for our question of the week this week, which has a Valentine's theme with Diana O'Carroll. This week is an environmentally conscious Valentine's week. Hello, naked scientists. This is Dirk Slavinsky from Perth, Western Australia. With the festive season behind us and Valentine's Day just around the corner, I was wondering: Is it more environmentally friendly to send an e-card than it is to send a traditional greetings card, considering the amount of energy needed to run and maintain the internet? Thanks and happy net surfing. So, how do we even begin to calculate the energy costs? So, my name is Andy Rice. I'm a computer scientist at the University of Cambridge. So, I think this is quite a good question. And what you need to think about is something called a life cycle assessment. And this is basically an idea of trying to think about all of the different stages in the production of different goods and services, and what they actually cost the environment. So I had a look around. There aren't many studies on this for greetings cards, but I did find some work which considers the impact of newspapers. And the authors of this paper, it was a Swiss study, found that if you have a weekday newspaper, it costs about the same as reading an online one, but With huge amounts of uncertainty and lots of assumptions. So, for example, you change the electricity mix, whether you have a lot of fossil fuels in it or not, and the online one moves a huge amount. And、uh, if you consider food, for example, the difference in footprint between a steak and a risotto is about 200 times the impact of what these authors found in the newspaper was. So, send your Valentine's card, e-card, physical, and then worry about instead what you choose from the menu on your first date. There are a huge number of variables to consider, but here at the Naked Scientists, we like to go a bit deeper. In fact, we got the author of Without Hot Air and Chief Scientific Advisor to the Department for Energy and Climate Change, that's Professor David Mackay, to work it out for us. Sadly, he was too busy with his myriad responsibilities to record it, so his answer is voiced by our very own Ben Valsler. To calculate the energy cost of the e-card, we can add one minute of the sender's computer time. That's two times 100 watts times 60 seconds, and that gives 12,000 joules. To be on the safe side, we add another 50% to allow for the internet's energy cost, and that gives us a total of 18 kilojoules. Moving on to the paper card. The card itself plus the envelope have a chemical energy of around 0.12 kilowatt hours. An educated guess says that the energy expended at the paper mill is likely to be similar, so that gives us 0.24 kilowatt hours. But then we can expect a fraction to be reclaimed if the card is recycled later. So let's round down and say the card costs about 0.2 kilowatt hours. But there's still the cost of transport to the shop and through the postal system. What is the energy cost of picking up the card from the post box and sending it out across the country? Sharing equally between the postal items, the collection part of the journey costs 0.01 kilowatt hours per item. 
then the card has to travel a bit further. Let's say from Lancaster to Skegness via several depots. The answer is 0.009 kilowatt hours. Adding this figure to the collection cost gives roughly 0.02 kilowatt hours. That gives us a total value for the paper card of 0.22 kilowatt hours. However, the e-card only costs 18 kilojoules, which converts to 0.005 kilowatt hours. That's on the order of 40 times less. An e-card could save as much as 40 times the amount of energy used in a paper card that travels through the postal system. But as Dirkman on the forum points out, an e-card can be considered more costly if you factor in the machines that run while your e-card is saved on servers even when you're not reading it. Or the energy is used by your own computer when it's on standby. Next week, how's your sense of direction? Hi, this is Alina Roberts from Corvallis, Oregon. I was wondering if you could tell me if the blind are able to walk in a straight line or if the sighted with the blindfold can walk in a straight line. If you can't see where you're going, how do you know if you're travelling in a straight line? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or write them on the forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Or the most environmentally friendly solution, I suppose, don't send a card at all and serenade your love you in person. You kill Joy. You kill Joy. No, serenade them in person. Uh, I, got my, I got my wife because of a Valentine's Day card, so I, I stand by them every time. Very nice. Thanks very much, Diana. Please do get in touch if you have any questions for us. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you to our guests this week, Alan Snyder, Mike Muller and Andy Hopper, and to our production team, Mira Senthalingam, Dave Ansell, Tom Simpkins, Diana O'Carroll and Ben Valster. We're back next week answering all your science questions, so send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a wonderful weekend in the meantime, what's left of it, and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.